0: All right, everybody, welcome back. Uh, we have uh, something to talk about here today that, whether you know it or not, it's affecting you. That's a guarantee because everybody here eats. And if you're eating, you are being exposed to certain toxins. Uh, A change in the reality of food supply and agriculture, uh, a change in chronic disease levels that we're all seeing. We can't answer why they're happening. Well, we're going to get into answers today. Uh, Brendan, thanks for joining us.
1: My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: So Brendan Moorhead has been diving deep into this topic, and I've been excited about this conversation in terms of toxins in our food supply. So thank you for bringing this forward to us, because every single person needs to know this.
1: I had the opportunity to interview Dr. Joseph Pizzorno a few years ago, and he's been a naturopathic doctor for, I, I believe, over 40 years. He founded the Bastyr University up in uh, Washington State. In recent years, he's been saying, like his main message is, as far as you can tell from reviewing the literature on many diseases, um, the primary cause of disease is mitochondrial function, uh, dysfunction rather caused by toxicity toxins from, from our environment and our food, but primarily from food and water. So which of course is our environment, but um, so food is a big part of it. And, um, and shockingly actually organic food is not entirely uh, exempt from exposure to some of these toxins. And And that was for that, that I can get into in a minute, but yeah, go ahead.
0: Yeah. And that was surprising to see because it's, it's so prevalent that, I mean, you really don't know where to go anymore and what's safe and what's not safe. Like you openly say that even
1: organic foods, there's certain things you have to look out for. Yeah. So the problem with, so I want to say first, organic is far better in general than, than food as far as exposure. But um, we have this, um, uh, small molecule called glyphosate it's very 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 mobile it's in rainwater and it's 65 or 75 percent of rainwater in the united states so that's getting to everything it's also in the water in the um you know irrigation ditches so it's going from one farm to another they also spray herbicides like glyphosate on the ditch channels to control weeds as if the weeds are really a problem there and um so that's poisoning the irrigation water and um then you have the issue. Uh, this is this is going to be um, perhaps an eye-opener for some people, but organic farms can use manure from animals. Right. That manure does not have to be from organically raised animals. It can be conventionally raised animals. So everything that's going in the mouth of those animals and coming out the other end is going onto organic farms. That includes a lot of conventionally raised grains, and those grains are drenched in you know, glyphosate and atrazine, which is another... Um, uh, herbicide, and which damages complexes two, three, and f- one, two, three, and five of the mitochondria. The other thing about what goes on to conventional crops that ends up in, I'm well please, sewage sludge. So wow. sewage sludge is allowed to be, um, you know, applied as fertilizer to conventional crops. And it's called biosolids. That's kind of the um, euphemism for it. And the thing about biosolids is there's a lot of heavy metals going into biosolids from, from um, you know, just municipal, municipal water supplies, industrial, um, you know basically everything gets flushed down the toilet and many things that come out the uh, tailpipe of industry goes into municipal water supplies and ends up in uh, sewage sludge slash biosolids. And the EPA has come up with a concept that they call sludge magic and that and uh (laughs) sludge magic is the idea the magical thinking that the organic matter poop (laughs) yeah of the organic matter in sewage solids biosolids binds irreversibly and immobilizes irreversibly all the heavy metals that are there oh wow Right, so arsenic, lead, cadmium, mercury. I think maybe thallium. I'm not sure, but those are those top four. The 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 arsenic, lead, cadmium, and mercury. Pretty high in um, sewage and biosolids. So that's going in and contaminating the conventional soils. And by the way, conventional soils get a lot of cadmium as well, um, because they're when I say conventional or conventional soils or conventionally grown food. I just mean you know mainstream. Chemical, highly mechanized, industrialized agriculture. Um, So, the phosphate fertilizers that are mined, so the ore often contains a good deal of cadmium. So, cadmium comes along for the ride to the uh, non organic, you know, the conventional farms of the world. And so, you get a higher amount of cadmium in the soil. And legumes, in particular, soy, preferentially absorb a lot of cadmium. So, Women with osteoporosis actually have been found to have been eating. Typically, they have a lot of cadmium in their kidneys. 16-year half-life in the kidneys for cadmium, and it damages the ability of the body to convert 25-OH um, vitamin D to 1, 25-OH vitamin D, which is the calcitriol, calcitriol, however you pronounce it, version that is actually the um, ultimately the active form that is used uh, to to uh, manage calcium. So uh so women with osteoporosis very often tend to be high soy consumers
2: and that's so
1: that's the mechanism there. So back to sludge magic um that's how the heavy metals via phosphate fertilizer and biosolids are getting into organic food via the gastrointestinal tract of conventionally raised cattle and manure.
0: That is so mind blowing. And then so, so then yeah.
1: So then, organic, non-GMO soy is going to be potentially high in cadmium because that you know, there's going to be some cad higher cadmium in uh, organic soils that are using manure.
0: Honestly, my brain is a little fried right now because it's turning into sludge, you know. Because there's so when you think about it, how do you escape all that? You know, it's 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 it's, it's like so prolific. Go to Mars. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's the solution just throw this planet aside and go to mars They <laughs> don't have an atmosphere there or water but you know we'll get by uh, uh, so how do you get around this so are we going straight to biohacking
0: <laughs> why not man I'm sure everybody's jaws probably already dropped and now it's like what do we do about this
1: you know heavy metals is is you know it's actually quite a trick to get heavy metals out of the body and you don't just want to attack it with dmps and msa and there's you know, there's these chelation clinics that they'll just attack with that. And it can really mess people up because they may right. not be ready for that. Some people can handle it just fine, but a lot of it has to do with um, their, the, the relative efficiency of their detoxification enzymes, which of course right. a company can help shed light on as far as like, which, you know, SNPs you have and which of the GST, the, you know, um, uh, based enzymes that, Conjugate glutathione in phase two liver detoxification. Right. And, um so those those transferase enzymes. And um, but if we're gonna look at it at going after heavy metals, you have to go all the way back and say, how inflamed is the person? Because if the person is really inflamed, they're gonna be really sensitive. Um and they may react to just about anything. If you're mobilizing metals, they can react to even good um, nrf2 promoters you know like some kind of cruciferous vegetable extract they can get inflamed from that because it's just moving things too fast so you have to deal with their inflammation so one of the things that's actually um kind of cutting edge uh a lot of practitioners are starting to use i don't know if a lot is the right word but at least the ones i'm following are starting to um use peptides. BBC, KPV are two oral peptides. You can take orally, you don't have to inject. And then there's others, TB frag 17 and, and stuff that are anti-inflammatory and can help calm down the neuroimmune activation that has been generated by Lyme disease or just dysbiosis. You know, if somebody has really bad, um, really imbalanced gut bacteria, and then they have intestinal inflammation, which is, by the way, aided and abetted by glyphosate because glyphosate is an antimicrobial that disproportionately kills beneficial bacteria more than Mm. dysbiotic bacteria like Klebsiella pneumoniae. Now, that organism and others uh, may be more prone to producing more beta-glucuronidase, which undoes your liver's handiwork by deconjugating the uh, toxins that have been conjugated by the glucuronidase um, Uh, step. Anyway, the the glucuronidation, the UDT enzymes, and those uh, toxins tend to be the fat soluble toxins like mycotoxins. So if somebody has mold toxicity, which is pretty common, then um, that can be deconjugated in the gut and then reabsorbed. So glyphosate is doing that. It's causing dysbiosis. And if it's causing dysbiosis and if it's causing intestinal uh, permeability, which, is, which dysbiosis does by itself, but also glyphosate uh, upregulates zonulin, which is a signaling molecule that tells the tight junctions in the gut to open. And it's done mm-hmm. you know, judiciously when the body is normally regulated. So just, you know, judiciously samples what's in the gut. But if you have glyphosate upregulating it a lot, they just stay open and stuff comes through. And there's more lipopolysaccharide from, you know, the, the, uh, exterior of gram-negative bacteria, and that is very inflammatory to the liver. So then the mm-hmm. liver's inflamed, and then one of the things that happens in that is some of the membrane transporter proteins in the hepatocyte membranes, where they're transporting bile conjugated toxins and phosphatidylcholine into the biliary canaliculi, which is like the, you know, headwaters of the whole, you know, biliary tree that drains down into the, into the uh, gallbladder. Those membrane proteins, um, under inflammatory conditions can retract inside the cell and then toxins are not getting out. So as phase two conjugates are backing up and then phase one uh, activated intermediates are backing up and that's where like cytochrome P450 enzymes in phase one are typically oxidizing something and making it temporarily more toxic, but more reactive so it can conjugate more easily in phase two. Phase one intermediates back up that's really damaging to the hepatocyte and eventually to save itself to push it back in the bloodstream, because as we all know, dilution is the solution to pollution. <laughs> <laughs> Even the liver knows that, right? Yeah. No, but that's what happens whether it's in society or in the liver. When you're in a crisis state, you're just like, well, just dilute it for now.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: So anyways, now this stuff's in the bloodstream and guess what? Glyphosate makes things, uh, makes the blood brain barrier also more permeable and a preferential, preferentially Helps aluminum and other certain other toxins get into the brain, but aluminum in particular and cadmium get into the lip into the kidney cells. So basically, glyphosate's making things more permeable, making everything absorb more toxins, and it's also indirectly causing and pretty directly too causing the liver to have this breakdown in function because uh, one of the cytochrome P450 enzymes. Don't ask me the number right now. I don't <laughs> try to memorize these things. I just know they're there and I can look them up, but. Um, it's one that makes uh, bile acids. So glyphosate directly Correct. impairs bile acid production. It's also directly impeding certain cytochrome P450 enzymes that are involved with, among other things, beginning the, transform- the biotransformation process of estrogens and getting them out of the body because the body, will, like estrogen is in cycles, especially in women, because there's a period when the body the female body needs growth signals. Estrogen is essentially a growth signal. And then it needs to come back down so it's just you know, this pulsatile wave so the female body needs to get rid of estrogen in a timely manner but when you have glyphosate in the picture that's not going to happen yeah. Or it's going to get or the the pathways are going to get deranged and you have more of the um the estrogens getting converted to the more toxic metabolites like the um the four and the 16 estrogens. right so and then and then com t has to come in uh, catechol-O-methyltransferase to, and that's the phase two part of handling those, glucuronidation can be involved as well with estrogens, but um, the COM-T part comes in and then if you have a bad COM-T enzyme, a slow com enzyme, and or if you have methylation issues, which would affect the supply of S-adenosylmethionine, SAM-E, which COM-T uses to methylate these things, then you've got double, triple trouble.
0: Yeah you know what what's incredible everyone has to appreciate what they were just given access to because i think everybody agrees that people are sicker now because of our food right and there's a lot of people still arguing that maybe that's not true that environmental health is not a concern but what we don't hear we hear the genetics of it that there's certain detox pathways glutathione you know glucuronidation the methylation pathways all these things that support or don't support what we're facing, what we don't hear, what you just laid out, the exact insults, like exactly what is happening, step by step, and the way you just laid it out, it's undeniable, like here's exactly what's happening, and here's why it's a problem, right, and that's what everybody needed to hear, I believe, because there's, there's always a little bit of gray area in environmental health, why does it make me sick, I think one of the areas where there's still controversy, where there shouldn't be, and I think because of the sort of incentives or needs to make sure that we don't all know the truth is with, you know, early childhood development with, with children. Uh, and that's where the word glyphosate really gets used the most, right. In terms of functional medicine, et cetera. So what have you seen in practice in terms of, you know, the current child growing up today is the child different are outcomes different? Is there a, a, a giant change in what's happening in, you know, sort of environmental health versus their outcomes?
1: Well, I'm probably not the best person to ask that in terms of my practice because I have not been working with children, but okay. um, I, you know, I do know that. So for example, back to Dr. Pizzorno, sure, um, sure. you know, quoting from the research, um, anybody can pretty much look this up as well, but the um, organophosphate pesticides um, they've done research on the children of mothers that had some, you know, everybody has some level of organophosphate pesticides. The children born to mothers with the highest level, I think they were using quintiles. So the women with the highest, in, in the highest quintile of, of organophosphate pesticides in their body, compared to the women in the lowest quintile of organophosphate pesticides mm-hmm. in their body. The difference between those two cohorts uh, or those two groups um, was a seven point difference in IQ in the kids of those two mothers. So organophosphate pesticide has a big impact on the children's IQ and seven points is a big difference. Um, People that I don't know how they come up with this estimate, but (laughs) um, but uh, estimate that that's that's essentially the equivalent of a kid working hard and getting straight A's and a kid working hard and getting C's. So mm-hmm. the difference in the, the the prospects in life for those two yeah. children are vastly different. It's 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 beyond tragic, and there's and and there's also been a study also. You know, I I've obviously I get all of my examples from Dr. Pizzorno. Just kidding. Yeah. I'm on a, I'm on a tear with him right now. So there was research done in I think Seattle, Washington, where they they um, had children that were eating uh, non-organic. And they put them, they were eating like 75% conventional, I think it was, and they went to 75% organic or something like that, or maybe it was 100 I'm not sure, maybe it was 90. But anyway, they made a big shift from mm-hmm. conventional toward organic. And in 30 days, their their uh the quantity of pesticide in their body dramatically plummeted. So yeah. You know, assuming we're dealing with kids that have reasonably good genes and stuff, because obviously there are some kids that are pathological detoxifiers, kids with autism that have messed up detoxification. So that kind of rapid shift may or may not occur. It yeah. may not happen as fast in autistic kids, but that, but there's actually a, like a documentary called Secret, I think Secret Ingredients um, that uh, Jeffrey M. Smith created um, of the uh, Institute for Responsible Technology. So th- in that movie um they they focus on one family and they had an autistic child and the, the mother and father also had some health issues and just by going organic um their health issues resolved they, they must they probably did a few other things that i'm not recalling but um that was one of the ma- main things that they credited for their son becoming i think he was basically no longer um diagnosable as as autistic but mm. it was like 11 or something and it you know it'd been about yeah. a five year period so it was, it was a delightful um, that's result.
0: incredible and this is a coming from a place where the belief is it's not reversible it's something that you have right it's a condition versus your body reacting to poor choices and poor choice is not necessarily the fault of the parent you're doing what everybody else is doing but your child may not be wired for those things right
1: i would say we have to be really sensitive on the topic of autism because First of all, I don't want to be interpreted to say that all you have to do is go organic, and it's that right. It's not that simple most of the yeah. time, and um, it's also not just a matter of, I would say, of of just of choices. Although, if it's diet, then yeah, that's choices. But there's other there's typically other factors involved with autism, and and the genetic analysis is super important. But they're also discovering that you know there's depending on who you listen to, like. You know, this group of autistic children, my God, 80 plus percent or whatever had Lyme pathogens. And then this other study is like, oh, my God, the glyphosate levels were astronomical. Or, oh, my God, all of these kids, they went autistic within three weeks of this particular vaccination. Yeah. Because all these factors <laughs> seem to have. But so it's kind of like um, any disease can be caused, almost any disease can be caused by almost any toxic insult to the body that dysregulates the body. So there's yeah. not there's one cause of autism, but if there's one, the one that correlates the highest is glyphosate, right? It's crazy. It's the, the, it's as close to a correlation coefficient of one as you can get. I haven't seen anything higher. It's 99.7 no. or something like that. If you look at the graph for when they, when glyphosate, um, you started to really escalate in the, I think it was mid eighties or not mid eighties. Right. I think it was mid it's either 86 or 96, and I don't know why I can never remember that one. But um, <laughs> you look at it, they both just start to take off right at that point, glyphosate and autism. And the thing about glyphosate is, and, and the other thing about <clears throat> about autism is they find a lot of aluminum in the brain, and a mm. lot of, but aluminum. So, you know, there's, so there's the hypothesis, well, there's a lot more aluminum in the next generation or the, the like, of vaccines when they, they got rid of the, um, the mercury part oh, right. another story. They didn't really fully get rid of the mercury part, but it's not on the label anymore. Um, and so, and then they started using aluminum as the official adjuvant and, uh, glyphosate transports aluminum into the brain. Glyphosate transports all kinds of things into the brain because it makes the blood brain barrier leaky. Mm. That's probably If there's, if glyphosate is like the main cause, it's because of that mechanism. And then whatever else can get into the brain, including Lyme pathogens or whatever, Lyme gets gets right into the brain with or without glyphosate, but glyphosate will help it get in there for sure.
0: Yeah. I think um, your point, people need to understand that everyone's looking for that cure, that switch to turn on or off. And this is why it's such a tricky subject and referred to as more of a spectrum than a condition because so many things cause it. And what we need to look at is not the things, but the genetic profile of that child who couldn't cope with whatever happened to be the trigger. It just, if something came before that, if it, whether it was lime, mold, you know, glyphosate, whatever it was, the order it came in is the order that you're going to discover <laughs> that it affected them. So it's really understanding your innate wiring capacity to deal with any toxic insult and then knowing what all the potential insults are. Right. And, and there's many of them and this is why it's hard to point your finger on a cause called the cause is really that inability to deal with all of this stuff, all the things you're talking about. So um, one thing I want, I want to ask you about is you uh, did something incredible. You hosted a summit called eat for earth. Uh, and a lot of people are still buzzing about that blown away. And you talked about how our food system is endangered, The planet is endangered uh people drew a lot from that summit and it really changed the way they think can we dive into some of the things that you uncovered there
1: yeah sure so uh in it much of what i said just now from uh uh, quoting from dr bizorno was part of hit one of well two of it i did two interviews with him okay Uh, so he's in there and those were great interviews uh first one's a little bit grainy because the 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 webcam on his laptop while i was traveling was an older one i'm like oh my god this one's so grainy but the content was great um and um you know what really blew me away hands down was getting to meet and talk to walter jaina twice walter jaina is a scientist from australia and he so australia has this commonwealth scientific and industrial research organization i think that's what csiro stands for okay so he was both a soil scientist and a climate scientist and um uh very very intelligent guy and but he's able to make things really clear and simple and in our conversation we talked about how when it comes to climate water dominates the the equation as far as um heat retention by the planet okay water vapor is a far more powerful greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide but the climate models were based on carbon dioxide because you know back then they started doing that after carter uh wanted task force i guess to to investigate anyway so they basically made the assumption well hydrological cycles are too complex and massive for us to model so we'll model carbon dioxide and we'll assume that as carbon dioxide uh carbon dioxide's greenhouse effect is, is amplified. That'll then cause more water vapor, which will then amplify that cycle, but then they have to keep adjusting the model because it doesn't really work that well. So, but the, the real kicker is the greenhouse effect is only accounts for, I think it was, he said 4% of climate dynamics and, and uh, energy flux, heat flux. So the rest of it is what it's hydrological cycles, not now water vapor is, is, a greenhouse gas, but water is acting also over here as as um, in other ways. So you have the flux of energy up into the atmosphere via transpiration, which is the water that's moving up through plants and getting transpired into the atmosphere. So that's one way that water is moving, the heat is moving into the atmosphere, it's being carried by the water vapor. And yes, the water vapor behaves as a greenhouse gas, but how is that heat actually getting out away from the planet? Mainly via rain events that open up an aperture in the atmosphere of all the, like all the greenhouse gases. And I'm not sure if I'm explaining that part correctly, but during rain events, um, a bunch of heat escapes into the upper atmosphere mm-hmm. and back out into space. <clears throat> so that's, there's like this flux of heat from the earth back out into the atmosphere. And it depends on healthy soils, healthy plants, healthy ecosystems transpiring Water into the atmosphere, and then it depends on normal cycles of storms and so forth, opening those apertures in the atmosphere so heat can get out from the lower atmosphere into the upper atmosphere and back out into space. So that's basically it. And those hydrological cycles, he named about ten of them. I wish I could say I had memorized them, but I think I had them memorized a few years ago, and now I don't recall <laughs> any of But I gave you the gist. But um, and there are there are things that we're doing that are impairing that process one of which is we're creating what what he calls humid hazes persistent humid hazes and that's occurring via um the dust that we're putting in the atmosphere by desertifying the planet mm. uh, and also by burning things like forests and cane fields and grasslands so we put a lot of particulate matter up there and then diesel you know we burn a lot of diesel so that puts a lot of um, particulates up there. And that is creating these abnormal types of clouds, we could call them the humid hazes that don't rain. So then you have far fewer of these uh, events, which in the tropics would happen like daily, right? If you've lived in the, if you ever spent some time in the tropics, especially during the wet season for that particular tropical area, it's like every afternoon it rains, it cools down. So it heats up, it's building, it's getting humid, storm, the storm brews you have that four o'clock rainstorm cools off that's not happening as much anymore so they're having abnormal rain patterns uh, like deficiency of rain in you know in tropical areas and uh so that's that was like a big aha from walter Yena is realizing that how climate actually works is not what we've been told and yes there's a heat problem And yes, there's a carbon dioxide problem, but actually, and this is coming from another one of the interviews, the carbon dioxide issue is less the greenhouse gas effect and more so the fact that the ocean absorbs a lot of this excess carbon dioxide, like the majority of it. And in water, it turns into carbonic acid. So the oceans are acidifying. And if that happens faster, than, than the organisms can take the carbonate and put it into shells and, you know, exoskeletons, which then drop to the bottom of the ocean as they die. If if, if, uh, if it's accumulating too fast, the carbonic acid, then the pH drops, acidity increases. And at a certain point, it's dissolving their exoskeletons and their shells. So already we're seeing that, like, for example, pteropods, P-T-E-R-O-P-O-D-S, the pteropods. So the pteropods, they're little tiny snails they're a plankton planktonic organism they're like snails they're the base of the food web in the like the like arctic type areas and like um subarctic like pacific northwest so all okay. the the um i think krill eat them. not no i'm not sure that krill is kind of more of an equivalent organism so um small fish and then salmon are eating the small fish and then the seals are eating the salmon the orcas are eating the seals and the salmon so that ecosystem is at risk if the pteropods dissolve, you know, and their populations crash. Another one is the, um, I had, unfortunately had horrible insomnia last night (laughs) and I'm a fast oxidizer. So my adrenaline just goes crazy when my, when I'm hungry. Um, (laughs) so anyway, these photosynthetic, um, planktonic photosynthesizers that build a, um, like a, a little shell, an exoskeleton around them. Okay. And, it, and those, those little exoskeletons are at risk of dissolving. I think some of them already are, and we've seen in some oceans of the world like a 40% uh, phytoplankton, that's what they call them, phytoplankton, phyto, meaning mm-hmm. they're like plants and they photosynthesize plankton, meaning they're you know, planktonic things floating around in the ocean. So the phytoplankton, 40% drop, this was as of 2010. I have not seen anything reported since then. So I don't know if everything's like copacetic for the moment or if they don't want to talk about it because there are some scientists they're like, yeah, we're all dead. It's just, it's just, it's all over, except for the shouting. And we've got until 2040 or 2050. I mean, that's what some scientists have said. And I hope they're wrong. And, but, and I tried to interview one of them. They wouldn't like, there's a couple of scientists. They just didn't want to talk to me. And I figured because they probably just don't want to ruin everybody's day because they're going to say something really negative. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but hopefully that's not the reason they didn't uh, <laughs> say yes to the interview. But um, it 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 might be very dire. So that was one of the things we talked about in in the um, the conference. But the other thing is okay. So you've got these really horrible stories that oh shit things are happening that are really bad, and we didn't know about them. We didn't know about the phytoplankton, the pteropods, we you know etc. The other the flip slide is this is back to Walter Jana. We just have to regrow the, what he calls the soil carbon sponge. Soil. Soil is carbon. It, we can draw down all kinds of carbon from the atmosphere. He says we can, you know, if, if we did the right thing on 1 billion hectares, which is about a fourth of the total agricultural land, including pastures, mm-hmm. and a lot of this can be done in pastures, it's going to be a lot harder to convert the thinking and the, the practices of, of farmers on arable land but um, it's, it's probably easier to get pastoralists to do their grazing differently. And there are ways of grazing animals that are profoundly beneficial to soil compared to really bad grazing habits that just ruin the soil. So there's a good way and a bad way to do everything. Cows are not the enemy. It's management. Bad management is the enemy. So, um Bottom line is we can rebuild the soil carbon sponge and the whole photosynthetic machine and the evapotranspiration machine um, that these technologies, let's say, natural. The planet had it all figured out, whether God did it or, um, you know, evolution, whatever. It all worked perfectly. And all we have to do is stop interfering and Mm -hmm. get the soils working better because then we're actually going to have a cooler surface on the planet and we're going to have um, a functioning heat flux back out into the atmosphere, and we can suck a lot of carbon dioxide back out of the uh, atmosphere into the soils. I think what I was about to say, is Walter Enos says, yes, we can draw down 20 gigatons of carbon every year. That's twice our net emissions, wow. of carbon into the atmosphere. So this, if, if, if we could just get everybody focused on this, We could fix everything in a decade.
0: Oh, wow. And yet you're not hearing about this anywhere.
1: No. And we have this stupid distraction. You know, one of the things I was going to say is like, in terms of like to echo, you know, what Zorno said about toxins being the main cause of disease. And I think in the alternative world, we kind of know that, but it's like the rest of the mainstream is like, no, no, it doesn't matter what you eat. No, no, it just happens. You know, disease happens. We can't do anything about it, but we'll, we'll treat you. But anyway, so, um, you know, the World Health Organization, which, you know, has kind of lost much of their credibility recently, but they did some good research. They've done lots of good research over the years. And one of the things they concluded quite a few years ago is that toxins are like one of the main causes of disease. But anyway, now we have this other who sponsored thing that's really distracting um, that. Um, yeah. So I think a lot of attention has been drained away from, from, from that, from the, um, the planet.
0: That's that's mind blowing. You know, when you think about all we hear is beef is bad, beef is the source of all of our problems. Worst
1: message possible. Yeah, and it's really it's just greed because I don't think it's just stupidity. I think that um, that there's sort of an unholy alliance between the tech elite because they, you know, and just in general um, investors, you know. Yeah, yeah. It's the next frontier. Monsanto's been working, and others like it, have been working on owning food. Right. The one thing they had not yet conquered, I mean, because they conquered a lot of crops and a lot of other things, they hadn't conquered animals. Yeah. Can we just turn, can we just make all of our, all of our meat in a factory uh, using intellectual property that we own? Bingo! Nice new industry, <laughs> nice new frontier. Awesome.
0: Yeah, no kidding.
1: Really good for investors. That's what.
0: <laughs> so when we talk about Eat for Earth, um, at an individual level, you know, every anybody that's listening to what just happened here, I'm sure is you know going to be compelled to say, well, what can I do? Um, so how do you start? How do I eat for? Earth? How do I do what I should be doing?
1: Yeah, um, just going a really long fast. <laughs> um, <laughs> so the first step is, well, you could go organic. So that's like a baby step. So, uh, for some people, that might be a big step. But um, uh, next step, uh, or a parallel step, would be um, get to know your farmer. They don't have to be organic if they're still if they're doing organic things. They don't have to be certified organic. So if farmers markets you can try to you know, gauge whether you trust what somebody's telling you and, and talk to them about how they grow things. And a lot of people say, yeah, you know, we don't use this, we don't use that. We use a little bit of this. Um, we're learning about regenerative agriculture. We're not certified organic yet. We might do that when it's, you know, it's, it's a lot of money to get certification, whatever. Um, so you can get some, you know, see, feel that out. Now there are some labels, some certifications that have been coming out the last few years. That pertain to um, "quote unquote" regenerative agriculture. So, what is that? So, mm-hmm. regenerative there's and there's differences of opinion there, and unfortunately, there's this divide where vegan and veganic um, movement that is very against using animals uh, is very, and I think they have a point in being kind of um, concerned that regenerative agriculture tends to always. that animals need to be part of the process. I think that animals are an important part of the process when it's appropriate and you can there's there's a whole conversation there. But I also don't think that we should say that organic agriculture is not regenerative because animals aren't involved. I think we need to have a more cohesive definition, more inclusive definition of of regenerative agriculture. That does not say that one of the pillars of organic agriculture is that you use animals and you use their manure. Um, But it's a great, as long as you're not putting, you know, conventionally raised crops through those animals, Mm -hmm. uh, biosolids, you know, uh, heavy metals and stuff, um, then it's great to use animals. And I won't get, unless we really want to, I won't get into like why animals are such amazing for, so amazing for soil fertility. But um, organic agriculture generally has to do with, I mean, regenerative agriculture generally has diversity. So you use diversity, you don't do monocropping. You have a lot of plants because that creates a lot of diversity in the soil organisms and you just get better, healthier soils. The other thing you do is you keep the ground covered at all times. Mm. In, uh, non-regenerative agriculture, both conventional and organic, they're constantly clearing the, the, all the crop off, all the crop you know, waste, the stubble, and they're just leaving this open soil to oxidize and put carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, right? Kill the soil organisms. So whatever you gained in that growing season in soil life, you didn't kill it with the sun and the you know desiccation and corruption hmm. and whatever. So you got to keep the soil covered. Um, and um, yeah, you know, it's funny I haven't even looked at the uh, four principles. Like four main principles, I haven't looked at them in a well. So keep the soil covered. Um, you got diversity. Typically, they include animal. Um, impact and so forth
0: okay because i i think it's important to to point that out because the very beginning what you said is that you know we're currently in a state where our poor mitochondrial function is causing all this disease right and a lot of that has to do with food so we're focused on fixing our food so you just finished telling us some things we can do to eat better but it's so difficult to get things right When it comes to food, especially with what's being offered and who knows what it's going to look like in a few years with all the forces that you're talking about that are trying to make changes, right? So there's, you also have to work out the other half that assume that you're not getting the best. And then what can you do to support the damage being caused? Like what you're doing right behind you, right?
1: Yeah. So let's get into more of that. So I was talking about, you know, how can you source better? How can you source your food better? So like, how do you get these things out of your body? Um, the toxins that you've accumulated and you know part of it is also you know the other the other part of the equation with conventional food and also to a degree with organic food is that the mineral nutrient density is not is not what it was Mm. so there's um uh there's a graph that was created by a guy named august dunning phd and it's out there on the internet on Slideshare, if you Google his name and you look for Eco Organics, it's the name of a company that he had, um, where he and he was telling the story of nutrient depletion, and he shows that from early in the nineteenth, twenty early in the twentieth century to I think the year two thousand, there was basically in some minerals an eighty-five percent decline. Hmm. But if you look at some of the reports you can find on the internet, they just look at like seventies to nineties or fifties to seventies or whatever. The, the usda doesn't seem to make it easy to find the data that he found because if you look at that broad swath of time you'll see a dramatic drop and it correlates with the increase in mechanization where they start chopping up the soil more mm-hmm. more with trackers and stuff and and then applying the first wave of um uh fertilizers and then the first then the first wave of pesticides all these things had damaging effects on the soil's ability to deliver micronutrients so why is that important <clears throat> because the, at at, it, at the foundation, this is not the only factor in metabolism, but we're we are enzyme machines, and that is a term I'm borrowing from Dr. Pizzorno. <laughs> and um, <clears throat> so, enzymes often require a cofactor, and often that cofactor is a mineral. So, if we're short on minerals and and glyphosate uh, chelates minerals, that's mm. patented as a chelator, in particular, it really goes after um, Manganese and iron mm-hmm. and cobalt and molybdenum. And, you know, there's actually a lot of minerals that goes after, that um, just binds to them. So um, we need these minerals to, to run our, our detoxification enzymes. Particularly particular, selenium is pretty important. Um, manganese, well, let's see. Yeah, manganese for certain D, um, antioxidant enzymes. And, uh, and of course there's B vitamins. That's easier to get, you know, from food. It's not as depleted in food. But, um, so you want to make sure that you have, that you test your minerals and your vitamins and your toxic burden to see where you're at. I would say that's like a first step is people should know where they're at. And of course, look at their genes because if you have, you know, uh, disadvantageous genetic variants, um, you may be where the enzymes are a little bit, um, inefficient. And sometimes that inefficiency is it's inefficiency. At binding to its cofactor so maybe if you can supply a right. cofactor but that depends on whether it's a vitamin or a mineral you don't want to oversupply certain things you can but you can kind of oversupply riboflavin safely and that's going to help support mthfr that's going to support um, that's the you know the methylation of folate mm-hmm. support gsr which is recycling glutathione because mm-hmm. that requires riboflavin so there's, there's a lot of actions there's certain practitioners that have been for decades just giving people a ton of riboflavin so like frank Schallenberger in carson city nevada he's big on just giving people a lot of riboflavin a few other things he does of course but that's just like one thing i thought that's really smart because if you look at riboflavin it's just it's pervasive as far as what it's used for it's so important to uh, mitochondrial function energy production and um and that the you know we used to get a lot from eating more beef liver and things like that so mm-hmm. um our more modern diet is maybe a little bit lower in riboflavin than traditionally. So again, you know, test these things, see what your gene, where your genes are at, check your inflammation. If you're and you'll know, like if you're a really sensitive person, you may want to use things like peptides, you may want to do things like that to simmer things down. If, if, especially if you just react to everything. Because like some people, they're going to get great results from like broccoli seed extract and milk thistle and taking, you know, this product or that product that combines say milk thistle and, you know, methane from, which is a modification of indole-3-carbinol from, um, cruciferous vegetables, you know, that upregulates, um, two and helps to balance, you know, these things you can take in certain ratios to balance phase one and two detoxification pathways in the mm-hmm. liver. And that's another point. It's like, it's good. It'd be a good idea to figure out before you embark on detoxification, are you currently a pathological detoxifier, which means your phase one is more active than your phase two um, or, or more efficient, let's say. And so you have a, if you have a tendency for phase two to not be able to keep up with phase one, then you get an accumulation of these right. uh, activated intermediates. And that's really dangerous. Um, and uh, so those people get worse when they try to detoxify. Mm-hmm. So it's important to figure that out, and then sort like okay, I may have to actually take a few things to calm down phase two, and other things to uh, to raise. Uh, excuse me, I meant phase one to calm phase one down and upregulate phase two. When I had yeah. like full on chronic fatigue syndrome, I used to notice that on certain afternoons where I was just like I felt so heavy and so dead, and like I just you know, like I couldn't do a freaking thing. If I ate grapefruit, I would suddenly go. I just instant improvement in my, and I could start to function again. And I did not know what that was about. I just somehow intuitively gravitated to try and grapefruit as something, you know. Um, and it has naringenin, or is it naringin, or naringin? Anyway, it's a bioflavonoid I think It's classified as a flavonoid. Um, and it downregulates some of this um, cytochrome P450 enzymes, or maybe just one key one, I'm not sure. And hmm. so... That could potentially resolve a a state of pathological detoxification and help to rebalance things just by chilling out an overactive uh, cytochrome P450. And it's not necessarily over, it's only overactive for the context, because if phase two can't keep up, then it's overactive in that context.
0: Yeah, it's really cool how you can really get personalized. uh, And when you truly do things for what you need, yeah. Uh, it's so effective because you're dealing with the root as opposed to the, the pain point What well, you talked about, uh, you know, that phase one and phase two, you, you made me, you reminded me of something that we learned in our research, which is in the glutathione pathway, the GSTM1 gene, it's potential, there is potential to have a copy number variation. You may not even have the gene. Right. And we learned something very odd that people that had both copies that were, you know, supposedly doing well were directly correlated with having autoimmune conditions and this seemed odd because we would think that these people do a good job but, but this is exactly what you're saying they're they're hyper detoxers mm. but where is it going right if there's no exit right and that's why we're saying if you're going to get into a detox regimen you better make sure you're pooping and peeing probably before you start
1: yeah that's right. the one thing is open those drainage pathways. right yeah
0: more. Yeah. And so, yeah, so what you're saying is right uh, on and people need to know that it's, you got to be functional. Don't go in blind and say that this pill or this YouTube video and only solve one piece of the puzzle. And the beauty is that it's not that complex. If you want to put the pieces together, like you've been listening to Brendan for a little bit here, and you've already been told much more than I'm sure you've heard previously. So it's the, the puzzle pieces are there. Just need to make sure you're doing it well and A to Z, not just one piece or one segment, and then I'm trying to figure out why it didn't work. Right. So, um, so you do still practice, right? You see patients.
1: Yeah. I don't call them patients because I'm OK. Not doctor, but yeah. So, so what so do you call I, them? I, actually, I call them members. <laughs> members. I have, yeah. I have a program. So, they're a member in the program. I run it through a private membership association.
0: OK. Very cool. Yeah. And so, that's awesome because that's what it should be. Uh, you know, if you're coming to your health, it should be an ongoing quarterback as opposed to someone calling you when they broke something, right? which is kind of what we deal with medical as is like, I can do whatever I want. And when something breaks, you have to fix it. That's your job. Yeah. <laughs> Meanwhile, I'll do whatever I want. So um, in your work, um, do you deal with a lot of women? Yeah. yeah okay. Actually. Okay. So that's I wanted to dive into that because <clears throat> everything we talked about so far, right. And then add on top of that, I'm a woman, right. Meaning that all of the hormonal considerations, which for sure exist in men, but estrogen dominance and toxicity, you touched on the four and 16 hydroxy estrogen, right? Yeah. So it, is what I'm saying, even something to consider that there, the, the sort of the outcome is much worse for women. Are you seeing that it's, there's, there's more nuances or more detailed work required. So all I was going to ask was that, is it that existing call of female hormone conditions like fibromyalgia, endometriosis, PCOS, all this stuff is just being exaggerated in nature or is it just a, another layer of problem they have to deal with?
1: Um, I'm not sure if I understand the question.
0: Meaning that um, I am not me, but a woman may be wired for fibromyalgia genetically and based on her habits and the current reality of now our exposures is that same woman now suffering from a much more aggressive version of fibromyalgia or is this environmental exposure just causing new problems that they wouldn't have had if they weren't in this, in this environment or, or this food environment?
1: Well, I think it's kind of both if I'm understanding the question. So, I okay. mean, because all these things like fibromyalgia and so forth, did we have these things 50 years ago? Or right. You have to go back 70, like, no, I don't even think there was a diagnosis of fibromyalgia in the world. You know what I mean? (laughs) Like maybe there was, but it was like really rare. So what changed, you know, things have been changing gradually over the last hundred years. And, um, and there's been an escalation of things and there's, you know, the, the, the uptick in, um, in glyphosate usage, for example, major, major watershed point where just, it's just dysregulating so much stuff. And, uh, so and and the female cycle is very sensitive to mm. a lot of different things and one of the one of the whole classes or categories of toxic substances are xenoestrogens meaning right. estrogens so a lot of these things uh you know like phthalates um, bpa um mercury is a, is a metalloestrogen it has estrogenic effects so as these toxins, um, that are, that are estrogenic accumulate, it's just really whacking out female systems, uh, mycotoxins. So mold toxins are highly estrogenic in particular, certain ones, I mm-hmm. think it's, um, zeralinone. And so why are we having so much problem with, uh, mycotoxins? We've had mycotoxins for eternity, but according to, uh, Dr. Dietrich Klingart, i not sure i think this was he said he was quoting research that he did with another doctor where they put they exposed uh mold to emfs electromagnetic frequency so they had some mold they did not expose it to and some mold that they did expose to that electromagnetic frequency and the excretion of mycotoxins went up like 600 fold or something and the the toxicity of the particular mycotoxins went up. Like there was some change in the molecules that made it more toxic. So we have an exponentially uh, higher exposure to toxicity from molds, uh, apparently from uh, EMF. So that's just in the last few decades that we've had this massive avalanche of, of EMF exposure. This keeps intensifying. And mm-hmm. the explanation or the, the theory behind this is that Uh, These organisms perceive, like you know, they can feel these frequencies and they perceive it as attack, and Mm -hmm. they just defend more. Mm -hmm. That's mycotoxins are are about. They're just defending their territory. Right. You know, uh, the most famous mycotoxin in the world is is the uh, penicillin. Mm -hmm. So penicillin was is a mold toxin that kills bacteria because the mold's like, nope, this is my turf, get out, you're dead. (laughs) It's very, very effective against bacteria. And so they have a lot of things that are very effective at killing other organisms.
2: The digestive process isn't just about breaking down food. It's about absorbing nutrients and eliminating waste. This is crucial for maintaining a healthy balance in your body and preventing chronic diseases. Our friends at BioOptimizers have a really powerful enzyme supplement that helps you digest your food better so you can get more out of it it's called mazymes mazymes takes your unique dna into account by using the best enzymes active at a variety of ph levels to support your digestion throughout your entire digestive tract plus it has astrazyme, a blend of highly active systemic enzymes to help improve nutrient absorption and support a healthy gut microbiome experience optimal digestion the way your body is meant to so, go to biooptimizers.com, that's B I O P T I M I Z E R S.com, and use the code DNA GO to get 10% off your order.
0: When something is that complex, like you're dealing with the hormone issue, is the foundational starting point, then, then there's the other food, environmental exposures, EMF, all this stuff, where do you start? Do you start with the actual conditioned or do you believe that that condition is a sort of you know it's a it's a outcome of all of this and let's start here or do you have to do
1: a kind of in tandem well i like to get the whole picture in view so i do a super detailed assessment of history the person's history their family you know history as well they're um just more in broad strokes with the family um you know all their symptoms symptom clusters look at their old lab tests to figure out what lab test might be next, but, um, and just get that whole picture and start to come up with hypotheses about what the causality is, but ultimately whatever's going on, there is kind of a general hierarchy, a sequence to go through. So I mentioned that you want to quell neural inflammation. That's Mm -hmm. kind of in general job, number one. And, um, if it's present, because that's just, it's just making the person too sensitive to everything. They can't, their body's in this defensive posture and, and, even benign supplements um can can be re- they can react to. Um, and if they're in a mold environment, like you have to look at is there current exposure? That's like another one of the job number ones is is there current exposure? You got to get them out of that. So mm. a lot of people have mold exposure and they don't know it. And mm-hmm. it's not like you can necessarily always just smell it. Oh my house stinks. I know I've got mold. <laughs> it's, not, it's not that easy. Yeah. Um, and uh, and then there's a lot of resistance. People have a lot of resistance to even looking. They don't want to entertain that idea. I'm like, no, I could never move. Well, guess what? You might just die there then, or just really suffer for 20 years and, and then die. But uh, there's a lot of there's you know there's a lot of focus on heavy metals, but that's not necessarily the first thing to go after. Um, so you want to get this the the major inflammatory influences and, and mycotoxins is way up there. And then, as we mentioned, look at. Look at the genetic picture. So, could there be uh, vulnerabilities um, that are causing them to be more likely to get dysregulated into oxidative stress and inflammatory pathways as a result of having the mold exposure mm. or other toxins, which could be heavy metals, like I said? But um, <clears throat> so there's certain pathway. I won't get go there right now. But keeping with the sequence, then you want to if the person then you want to strengthen the foundations because the person's energy needs to be adequate in order to detox and to, right. for the immune system to function normally and, you know, start to combat the, the infection that maybe it's not been able to defeat. Or sometimes the, the infection has been actually reasonably well controlled, but their nervous system and their, their neuro um, immunology is still hyperreactive to the vestiges, even just fragments. There's this one guy, I think his name's Bruce Patterson, that I've um, have understood to be to have found that um, in Lyme and in COVID, post like long haulers, the, it's the monocytes, I think, that are carrying around fragments of the organisms that they've destroyed, but they haven't been able to get rid of it. So it's still, in, it's still um, an antigenic stimulant. It's mm-hmm. causing the body to be reactive to this pathogen that's basically maybe gone or at such a low level. And so, you ha- so that's where back to the top where we're like, hey, maybe use peptides to, to re- remodulate the immune system. Then you can start to go after residual toxicities and stuff once things are calmed down. So then, um, <clears throat> so where was I? With the um, strengthening the energy, uh, and you want to do that carefully. So. You support adrenal function, maybe support thyroid function, support mitochondrial function, but don't push it too hard because the thing is these people are typically, if somebody's really messed up, I'd say these people, but I'm thinking of the <laughs> population of people with chronic complex illness where, you know, it's chronic fatigue syndrome-ish um, kind of thing, maybe Lyme, they're not sure, maybe it's mold too, and the... Um, the, there's this thing called the cell danger response, or it's, a, it's more of a concept. We don't know that it is the you know thing, but it's a really great, well-founded um, idea. There's a lot of evidence behind it that the body goes into certain stages of responding to a threat. One of them is it transforms mitochondrial function from energy producing to defensive mode. And um, if you push them, they're just going to do more of that which is produce more reactive oxygen species right. they're not going to produce more energy they're just going to produce more inflammation and oxidative stress so you don't want to push the mitochondria um you can support them a bit with like antioxidants um certain ones like coke d-10 and lipoic acid and so forth vitamin c but don't like throw a bunch of uh, l-carnitine and stuff like that there's a time for that but um it's probably not in the, with somebody's in uh, cell danger response which is also going to manifest in things like what they call chronic uh, inflammatory response syndrome. So that's a concept of of Dr. Richard Schumacher. Now, not everybody follows, you know, his model. Um, Some people find fault with it, Um, but it's as far as like how he treats it, but it's a good model for as far as like what's happening, Um, this chronic inflammatory response and there's mast cell activation syndrome. All of these kind of fit into the same pot. They're just different ways of organizing how you look at it the bottom line is you have to calm things down and then you have to support energy in a gentle way. So the person can begin to detox. And once things get settled down, then you can do some detox. And again, like you were saying, you've got to open the drainage pathways. So you, if you look at yourself at a funnel, you know, your poop is coming out at the bottom and then somewhere up here, you've got the, the gallbladder, the liver and the gallbladder, you've got to have that bile secretion uh, working well And so, unfortunately, glyphosate and heavy metals are impairing all that, and dysbiosis—that's impairing it. So, one of the after you get probably the first step in improving uh, drainage um, and you know getting the bowels moving is simply to go and try to correct dysbiosis if it's there, because that's just going to keep dysregulating the liver with the lipopolysaccharides. So you've got to deal with that. So. That's why you know all disease. They say all disease begins in the gut. And you start with the gut. That's largely true, but there are some things that are even um, higher priority, like trying to calm down the neuroimmune response. Some of this you can do all at the same time, but addressing that uh, dysbiosis so that the, um, the monkries, uh, to use an old-fashioned term, will work and keep moving things out through the gastrointestinal tract and liver. You don't want to burn the kidneys too much you know, and when there's overflow from the liver, then the kidneys are getting damaged um, because they're not, they're not, you know, they are a detoxification organ, but they're not meant to be the primary one. Right. Heavy metals are extremely damaging to the liver, like cadmium, as we mentioned. So, um, and then once you get that stuff, moving, it's good to also get the lymphatic system moving. Mm -hmm. So learning some lymphatic self-massage, and there's some machines out there that help with lymphatic drainage um, that can be useful, especially if there's if there's a pathogen load, because a lot of those pathogens may be hanging out in the lymphatic system. So as you're killing them, you want to make sure they're getting out of the area yeah, yeah, yeah. and, and moving quickly. So what happens is they get dumped back into the bloodstream from the lymphatics and then go to the liver. You can't have a congested liver. You, know, hmm. so you have to have that working before you work on, on lymphatic drainage. Um, wow. once you get all of that going, it sounds really complex, but you know, it's just kind of one, two, three, you just, you just knock it off. Some people can get stuck on one for a while and some people just can move quickly through and they can be like in, you know, zero to 60, you know, all the way, all the way in top gear in a week or two. So it just depends on the individual. And, uh, and then, so how do you get this stuff out? Well, there's different things you can use, as I mentioned, to, to balance phase one and two, and to upregulate let's say glutathione, you know, Uh, production and conjugation by the way on the topic of glutathione is really important there's too much emphasis on just supplying glutathione
0: right the thing
1: is if you can't recycle it yeah oxidized glutathione is an oxidant and it combines with oxygen to produce superoxide and that is one of the key drivers of inflammatory stress there's this whole cycle this whole pathway where emfs Life, indirectly via um, NF-kappa-beta, um, uh, uh, so I think certain heavy metals, et cetera, um, IL-6 and interleukin 6 which was stimulated by COVID, among other things, and infections. All these things are, are causing the body to go to, into an attack, defensive attack mode, where it takes NADPH oxidized, oxa, oxidase, NADPH oxidase, easy for me to say. <laughs> Let's call it NOX. So the NOx enzyme is taking NADPH uh, and, and oxygen, it's creating superoxide because it's going to use that to shoot things. It's going to go crazy, come out guns blazing, shooting at you know perceived pathogens or pathogens. And so we have this upregulation of superoxide, which can be caused by something that's not even a pathogen, like EMFs. Right. So this is another dysregulatory influence of EMFs. But um So NADPH is getting um, routed from instead of participating in regenerating and recycling glutathione, it's now creating superoxide. And then superoxide is supposed to be controlled by superoxide dismutase enzymes. So there's another place to look at your genes, see if that's an issue. Plus look at your manganese, you need your manganese for superoxide dismutase to work. And then if it's not so, so what those, what superoxide dismutase is supposed to do is turn superoxide into hydrogen peroxide, and then the peroxidase enzymes like glutathione peroxidase, like the thioredoxins, and like catalase, <clears throat> they can then take the hydrogen peroxide to water and oxygen. So that's how things work for us to control the oxidative, in the oxidation, uh, the oxidants that we're producing intentionally. The body is intentionally producing oxidants. To go after an invader or perceived invader. And but these things can get dysregulated. You can have deficiencies of the cofactors, like mm-hmm. selenium, which is a cofactor for the peroxidases, and copper and manganese, which is our cofactors for two versions of the catalase enzyme. And then you have, so here's what happens. So if superoxide is getting produced in excess, it's not getting shunted off into hydrogen peroxide and then, and then water and oxygen. Then through a variety of steps, there's a few steps, it goes and combines with nitri- nitric oxide. So you have superoxide superoxide combining with nitric oxide to produce peroxynitrite. Right. So that's the peroxynitrite cycle. And that's being implicated in more and more diseases. So it's like a new frontier. Like, oh my God, we see peroxynitrite up, up, uh, upregulated um, in all of these conditions. So that's another thing that... Um, it's being discovered and it's, uh, um, and how did I get on that topic? I guess I was basically saying that, (laughs) that there's all these things that can be happening that are just keeping, distracting the body's resources from detox. Yeah. Because now you're using up the NADPH. uh, There's a guy that calls it um, NADPH steel. Bob Miller calls it NADPH steel because it's stealing the nadph resources uh over to that um wartime use instead of peacetime right. Peace time use would be anti-aging you know detoxification um water skiing <laughs> whatever yeah, <laughs> what yeah, do yeah, with yeah. your energy so where was i
0: <laughs> yeah you know I, I mean everything you've laid out it's this is stuff where people wanted to know the actionable side of it meaning that these are all bits and pieces that you hear right in different conversations um but we don't know what to do with it right yeah, and and I'm and, cool it, and I, yeah really honored that you gave us this time because you made it so clear so concise right and the the you've condensed
1: about concise, but
0: <laughs> well concise meaning and the way that the number of things that you just laid out you know we could have just talked about one portion like the you know like you said comp like just that and but you, you you gave us the whole map. And if anyone replayed this, listen to it three, four five times because you've been given the map. Here's exactly how what you need to do and start working on it bit by bit by bit. Start working out in the order in the order you were told. So you don't cause yourself, a you know, a plug up or clog up, you know, do it in the right the right fashion. Uh, but this is it, man. It's it's obviously we know that food is a concern. <laughs> We know that from glyphosate to everything else that's being ingested, not only through our food, but through our skin and through what we breathe. Um, there's no, no doubt that chronic disease in general, it's a part of life now where it used to be an anomaly. Like you said, fibromyalgia wasn't a thing seven years ago. It's now a given, you know, some kind of hormonal disruption and hormonal disease. So um, long story short is I want to thank you Because this was mind blowing for me and I hope everybody enjoyed it as much because you were able to really actionable in an actual way, I should say, deliver. Here's exactly what you do, right? Here's all of it. Here's what you've been, your members have been benefiting from. And we just got a sneak peek into, and I should ask you that maybe before we go, um, how do people work with you if they want to?
1: Well, a good way to connect would be to um, actually download the free, the free report. Right. Um, so, and I, I think I'm changing the name from how to stop agricultural toxicants from killing you, <laughs> why eating organic <laughs> is not enough, and how to biohack your DNA to protect yourself <laughs> or something long <laughs> like that to just, I think I'm simplifying it to uh, 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 biohack your detox. Right. Um, so, look for that, one of those, either the real long title or the short title, <laughs> and uh, download that. So, that's going to present what I've just discussed in more detail and in a more organized fashion. And it's, it's each, each topic is done pretty concisely, but there's a, there's a lot of detail there. And then it comes into some pretty detailed steps people can, can take. Um, And then, um, you know, also, so there'll be links in that to, you know, where they can go to schedule a free um, conversation. I actually have meant to embed my scheduling form on a particular, you know, they could go to bioindividualblueprint.com. Okay. It's not its own website right now, but it will be in a moment. So, and it does forward to a page that's functional. So, um, bioindividualblueprint.com. Also, check out the Eat for Earth event. You'll get on my newsletter there. um, Go.eatforearth.org if you want to sign up for a free viewing period of those um, Eat for Earth interviews that we talked about. Right. And uh, what else? Yeah. And I want to say that, you know, I love the DNA companies concept of storyboarding right and because that's essentially what i've been trying to do is like there's these different stories there's these cycles each cycle is a story it's this thing that could be happening as a result of these various influences and you kind of got to map all these things figure out um you don't necessarily have to map them all but it's a good idea to look at your genes and look at your symptoms and figure out okay it looks like maybe the proxy nitrate cycle is happening and there's you know you could look at you can look at certain tests where look if there's DNA damage evident, um, in certain metabolites that show up in urine, and that would be potentially caused by peroxynitrite because it uh, and the carbonate radical, which, um, comes off of that, which is, um, off of that cycle, which are damaging the DNA. But, um, yeah, so, and that's, but generally I, I work with people in, as both in one-on-one and in a group context in a group program. And so, those are some options we could talk about if, if you, uh, if one of the listeners wants yeah, to
0: that's amazing. We're going to share the link so people can download that guide that you produce. And I, I signed up for the newsletter myself because I'm anxious to learn more. Uh, I suggest everybody does. It's a blessing that you have access to information like this when we're all struggling. The reason you're here today is to figure out the why, like what's going on. Well, here it is, you know, you, you have access to it. Um, uh, thank you again, Brendan. This was incredible. Uh, it was, you know, all the answers that I personally was looking for, you sort of laid out and more. So thank you again for your time.
1: Oh, my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me.